In life, we have to ask ourselves the question, do I know the Bible or do I only know what my teachers have told me about the Bible? This is why we do verse by verse study, right? So you can understand the text, the Bible better, so that the teacher could then step away and you could be left alone with the text and go, yep, I get what this means. I'm not just quoting Mike or quoting so-and-so because they said such and such. So do I know better the Bible or what various teachers have said about the Bible? That's a good question. And tonight's passage is pretty important. We're going to start in Romans 3.28. This passage refutes almost every unbiblical gospel in plain words. So there are certain commonalities when people come up with false gospels, false ways of salvation. Even using the Bible, they'll come up with false ways of salvation. This passage will refute that. And it will also equip us on how to witness to Jewish people. It's a really interesting passage. I love it. There's actually so much more in the, in the Bible than we realize on how to witness specifically to Jewish people, those who have the scriptures. And so here we are in Romans 3 verse 28. It says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. This is a big conclusion. This is kind of where we ended last week. But uh, this means it's not Jehovah's Witness theology that you're justified by faith along with some of the deeds of the law. Not even all of the Old Testament, just certain laws, certain rules that they've come up with, which you can find many of them in the Old Testament. It's not Mormon theology that says you're saved after all that you can do. No, you're saved after all because you can't do. <laughs> that's, that's how you're saved. It's not Islamic theology where it's basically, are you hopefully, or you're, you're good enough, hopefully, and hopefully, you know, Allah decides to bring you in. Um, based upon your goodness, along with some mixture of goodness and grace. It's not Catholic theology that mixes grace and works. Here it's justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now, I know there are some Catholics even who are very nuanced in their thing. They'll say, well, you're saved by faith plus works, but the works are enabled by God's grace. But they save you, but it's from God's grace, but they save you. And their works. And so this becomes a confusing thing that the Bible refutes when it's when it just plain faced says it's faith or works, it's grace or works. You don't have a mixture of the two. And Romans does that very clearly. Now you might say, but Mike, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Islamic theology, Catholic theology, these aren't actually using the Old Testament law. They're not saying what Romans 3.28 is refuting. Romans 3.28, you're saved by faith apart from the deeds of the law. They have a different system. It's not Moses' law. It's a different system. Actually, they are using the deeds of the law. So, for instance, if these, if say, in Mormon theology, they say you have to love God and love others and you have to keep your vows. Well, that's Old Testament law. Those are deeds of the law. All they're doing is getting rid of most of the deeds of the law, keeping a few of the deeds of the law, and saying that's sufficient to do what it couldn't do for the Jews that kept it, to the best of their ability. All these other religious systems, what they do is they edit the law and they use a edited, like cut and copy, cut and paste type version of the Old Testament law. And then, and then they go, yeah, we're not under the Old Testament. We're under this like chop, 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 this sort of jury rigged version of, the, of our own law that's lesser than the Old Testament law. But the point of the law was to say, you want to make it? Here's the requirement. You fail. Go to Jesus. Get grace. So any mixture of faith and works is, of course, refuted because we're justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, as it says in Romans 3.28. Then as we read on, it says, Or is he the God of the Jews only? 
Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there's one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. As you're reading through Romans, especially, but in Paul's letters and Corinthians and stuff like that, you have to kind of like sort of try to get a little bit into the mind of Paul. Not where you're assuming a lot of things, but you're sort of saying, why did he just bring that up? Why did he bring that up? What he's doing is this is in response to the idea, if righteousness did come through the law, well, then it would only be available to Jews. Then the only people that could have been saved throughout time were Jewish people. Up until Jesus came, died, rose again, and now it's open to everybody. But before that, only Jews could be saved because it was through the law that only the Jews had. He's responding to this. And his response is, isn't God the God of the Jews and the Gentiles? Doesn't he care about all people? Do you think he only provided a way of salvation for the Jewish people? Don't you think he also cared for the non-Jews? What about the Gentiles then? What about them? Uh, there were some uh, Jews of the time, some who thought that the Gentiles were, you know, why, God, why did God make the Gentiles? They'd respond, fuel for hell. Fueled to keep the fires of hell burning. No, that's definitely not the case. That's definitely not the case. Isn't God caring for the Gentiles as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. So then, then he concludes verse 30, since there is one God who will justify the circumcision, circumcised, the Jews, by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Remember that puzzling verse, Romans 1.17? I think it may connect to this, where it said, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And it goes on and it says to the Jew and to the Gentile. And then here it says the, the circumcised by faith, the uncircumcised by faith. So maybe the first faith is the Jew, the second faith is the Gentile in Romans 1.17. Um, all people, in other words, are saved by faith. Some people nowadays, you're like, oh, I wasn't really worried about this, Mike. I wasn't like, God only cares about Jewish people. It didn't occur to me. But at the time, this was kind of important. Nowadays, I've actually heard it in nowadays vernacular, put it this, this way. That God only really cares about a small group of white Europeans. Because that's where Christianity flourished, Right? Only, only white Europeans, that's all God really cares about. I would say actually the opposite is true. God so loved the world. And this is why Christianity has spread so far and so wide. There is no other religion on earth that has spread so far and so wide, that has crossed over ethnic boundaries, age boundaries, cultural boundaries, you know, financial boundaries, just across every border, everywhere that people go, the gospel goes and people get saved. The number of believers in China is way higher than the number of believers in Europe or in America for that matter. And so what we actually see is God so loved the world and Christianity is a worldwide religion. People who criticize it and say it's a white European religion are just ignorant of the facts. If you want a white European religion, then go look at, I don't know, um, atheism. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Now the atheists are going to be mad at me. Um, okay, it's not technically a religion. Um, but no religion has spread so far and wide like this. It, it's not just about one culture. This is not just about one culture. He cares about the Jews and the Gentiles. God cares about all. Then in verse 31, it says, Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So now the question is not about, does God only care about Jews or Gentiles? Rather, the question is, what about the law? What then is my relationship with the law? Do I make it void? Is this where I just go, ah, the law was that icky thing. I'm so glad to be rid of it. No, the law was the standard 
And by faith in Jesus, you establish the standard because Jesus met the standard. You know, I can't enter a door without the key that fits the lock and the tumblers and all that in the lock. It has to fit just perfectly in order to let me in. So if I put the key in and then I walk on through, I have now established the lock in a sense. I've fulfilled it. And so Jesus is the key. You just aren't going to get in on your own. You need him to do it for you. He did it for you. So there are a few misunderstandings about the Old Testament law. There's, I'm going to give you three misunderstandings. One would be that the Old Testament law saves you through obedience. Paul clearly refutes this. Totally and utterly refutes this. The experience of the Old Testament law refutes it. When you see Israel fall short, fall short, fall short, fall short, fall short. Just find people who fulfilled and perfectly obeyed the law. And they don't exist except for Christ. So it doesn't save us through our obedience. It saves us through Jesus' obedience in a sense. Uh, number two, a second misunderstanding about the law, that the Old, Old Testament law says nothing to you. It was only a placeholder. It was just like a temporary thing and it has nothing to say to you. There are oceans of truth we can learn from the Old Testament laws. Tons of wonderful, beautiful stuff we should apply into our lives today. We apply it not in the sense of pretending that we're Jews who are under the law, but of learning from God from the laws that he gave to his people. We learned many good things from these things. Some are eternal moral truths. Some are principles that we learn about civil behaviors and, and right and wrong things. And others are um, pictorial truths of Christ and relationships and all kinds of, all kinds of great stuff. We don't make void the law like a, like a canceled check. Like, never mind, I take it back. So the third thing that we shouldn't misunderstand about the law is that the Old Testament law does not govern all believers in Jesus today. This is dealt with actually not really in Romans here, but I thought I should bring it up since we're on topic. Uh, other places later in Romans, we'll talk about the place of the Old Testament law in governing the life of the believer, but also Galatians and Colossians. These are books to read and even Hebrews if you want to look at the sacrificial system of the law. And you want to understand how they apply into the Christian's life. It's in the New Testament. The New Testament gives us the way that believers should view the Old Testament law. And it is not so that these laws directly govern us. Um, and in my experience, most people who say that we should be under the law are very selective. And they're not really under the law. They're very selective about which laws they think we're under and which laws they think don't apply anymore. And um, it ends up, to me, kind of undermining their own position that they think they're supposed to be under these laws. But that's not Paul's focus. Um, right now he's speaking on how the law relates to salvation. How does the law relate to salvation? Because it was given to govern Israel, but how does it relate to us getting saved? We don't dismiss the law, we establish it. And Paul's not done with this. He's going to offer more support from the Old Testament, talking about how the law, meaning not just the rules, but the actual books themselves, the Old Testament, how they uh, give us Christ, how they point to Christ. So this is good advice for witnessing to Jews. What we're about to get into in Romans 4, fantastic advice for you're going to share with a Jewish person or anyone who's familiar with the Old Testament when it comes to the issues of salvation and if they're fighting you on being saved by grace through faith apart from works. You could do what Paul does here in Romans 4. So he says this, What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? Now, what Jew could argue with this reasoning? Think about it. He's saying, hey guys, let's talk about Abraham. Oh, Abraham, he's the guy. He's our example. He's, he's like all Jewish people come from him. He's our father, Abraham. So we're going to use him as the example of what, how he was saved. How was Abraham saved? Oh, well, obviously, because he was a good man. 
Because Abraham was so good, that's why he was saved. Oh, really? Is that what it says? Paul says, let's go look at it. Right? Open to Genesis. And so he takes them into the scriptures with this. So what then shall we say that Abraham our fathers found? What Jew could possibly argue with this? I mean, Abraham was saved, right? We're not going to disagree on this. You're not like, yeah, Abraham went to hell. Like, this is not, this is not, not an option. He was a believer. He truly had a relationship, a real and permanent relationship with God. God said to him, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. He inherits God. I mean, he's, he goes to heaven. He, he gets to be eternally with the Lord. So how do works factor into the salvation? Verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So again, works in Paul's mind, and really in God's mind, the Holy Spirit inspiring this, works equal boasting. If you think you're saved by your good deeds, you will become arrogant. You will become boastful. Your humility will be pretend. It won't be genuine. It'll be a false humility. It'll be, aw, shucks, you know, kind of thing. Not a genuine humility of, I am a wicked sinner saved by the absolute kind grace of my loving God, who instead of giving me wrath that I deserve, brought me out of the pit, you know. So, Abraham would have boasted, but how was he justified? Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Accounted to him for righteousness. This is uh, Genesis 15. So if you would turn to Genesis 15, but while you're on your way there, let me talk about this word justification. In verse 2 of Romans 4, it said Abraham's justified, right? He was justified. Was it by works or by grace? That word justified is sort of defined in verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So when you say, what is justification? It's when God puts righteousness into your account. He says, it's like putting something in someone's bank account. I'm accounting righteousness to you. I'm saying, here you go. There's righteousness. Abraham got this righteousness. How? By believing God, Genesis 15, verse 6. But, but let's look at it in context. Genesis 15, 1, because it's even better than you might think. Here we are. This is the first book of the Bible. We're talking this was written around 1400 BC. And in it, we have the way of salvation being the same way of salvation that we find in the New Testament 1400 years later. It says in Genesis 15, 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And uh, if you didn't know, Abram and Abraham are the same guy. Later, God changes his name and makes it, makes it more broad. It's, there's symbolism and all that. So I'm your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? It's kind of like saying, whatever you give me, Lord, I'm going to pass it on to someone who's not even related to me. I got, I got no one to, to, to give my inheritance to. No children, no seed, no future in that sense. Then Abram said, Look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my, in my house is my heir. Because in lieu of having a child, whoever was the chief servant would end up inheriting the property. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside. I love the visual here. He actually brings him outside. He's like, Abraham, come outside. He walks out of the building or whatever he's at. And then he looks up at the stars. It's nighttime. He says, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you were able to number them. And he said to them, so shall your descendants be. You won't even be able to number them. If you saw all your descendants, all your future kids, 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 you know, you would look out and you couldn't even count them. 
just like you can't count the stars by looking at them. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So there's several really neat points in Genesis 15. Like it says that God is Abram's shield and his reward, meaning he had what? Relationship with God. And it shows that Abraham believed in God and was given righteousness. But think about what he believed. It says it in verse 6. He believed in the Lord. He didn't just believe what God said. He believed in the person of God. He believed in who God was. God, I trust you. My faith is in you. I believe what you said because I believe you. Faith is a very personal thing. Trusting in God is not just believing biblical things. Trusting in God is a personal faith in a personal creator. And Abraham had that. It's not just the what, but the who. Now, this means something. This means that doubt, when I experience doubt, not just like a nagging thought that I, that I might fight down or whatever, or battle with or deal with or approach with truth, you know, hold that shield, but doubt where you're actually doubting God's goodness, doubting the personhood of God and his, his qualities. This is not only factually wrong, it's a personal issue between you and God. Like it's, it's more than just wrong facts. It's a personal issue. If I doubt God, if I choose to reject faith in God, then there's a way in which I'm, I'm rejecting God personally. That's a big deal. But this, the, the, the flip is also true. If you flip that upside down, you go, well, then that means that when I do believe in God and trust in him, that's a personal thing too. I'm not just like, I believe in the doctrines of Christianity. Like I believe in God. I trust in him. He's my maker. He's my savior. He's my, it's a pers- it is a personal relationship. It's not just a religion. Yeah, we have a religion, but not merely a religion. We have a real personal relationship with a real God. And ultimately, this promise relates to Christ. How cool in Genesis 15. We have a promise that relates to Jesus because from Abraham's seed, this carrying on the seed from from, uh, Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And now it's going to be the seed of Abraham. And in in, in him, all all the world will be blessed. And so we're talking about ultimately Messiah. And he trusts in a promise that relates to Messiah. So he had a shadow. He had a, an example of faith in Jesus without fully knowing everything about Jesus. Well, how is it faith in Jesus? Well, Jesus is, is Yahweh. He is the Lord. And so he believes in him. Um, so the conclusion for Paul. Think about Paul writing to like an audience. Some, some of the people in Rome, they're Jewish people, reading the letter. And they're like, oh, this is, this is terrible stuff. You know, no, no, you have to be a good person. What about Abraham? Exactly, Abraham. He was a good person. What does the scripture say? He was saved by faith. He believed God and God accounted to him for righteousness. Boom, he like drops the mic and walks away. This is a big deal. This is a really big deal. Paul is making a huge statement. The father of all Jews, the ultimate patriarch of all the Jewish people, was saved in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, 400 years before the law, by faith. What do you think that means for the rest of us? This is cool reasoning. I like this. I want to I, I wanna go and share, share this with people and make a YouTube video out of it or something. All right, verse 4. Now to him, uh, back to, sorry, back to Romans chapter 4. Verse 4. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Again, Paul, he's drilling this in. You cannot mix works with grace works with faith. It's one or the other. You don't get both, right? If you work, it's, it's debt, not grace. 
If you don't work, but you just believe, then that's faith for righteousness. So he's now saying Abraham, the theology of Abraham is the same as the theology of the gospel of Jesus. Nothing has changed. It's just been fulfilled. It's just been fulfilled. Why do you think Paul has to keep repeating himself that you can't mix faith and works? <laughs> because nobody pays attention to this. <laughs> Because we want to boast about something. We want to put our, 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 little, our little star on or whatever and be like, yeah, I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm a good person. No, I'm a good person. Like, I know I need grace. I need some grace, but I also do my own thing. And it ends up just being, um, uh, really, it's heresy. It's heresy against, against the word of God. Verse 6, <clears throat> it says, Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Now, Paul, having, having taken Abraham and showed how he's an example of salvation by faith, he now switches gears to David. Why do you suppose he's picking these guys? These are like prime examples of awesome Jewish men. Right? Abraham, I mean, in a sense, he's not technically a Jew. Well, he's the father of the Jews, you know. So these are awesome Jewish men, awesome patriarchs of the Jewish people. And he holds them up. And David, the best king they ever had. Every king they had after David, the, the, the books of Chronicles, kings, they just compare these kings to David. Hey, he did good, like David. You know, it's like, it's always like, oh, he did bad, unlike David. You know, he didn't follow David's example. David was a good king. He had some major failings individually, personally, but he was a fantastic king of Israel. And, um, and so what shall we say? What has David said about the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. This is that imputation, putting it into one's account. You ever had somebody impute something into your account? Where you're like, you go check your account online and you're like, oh, uh, something has been imputed to me. <laughs> this is very nice. You know, you didn't, it, it, it's just given to you. It's just given to you in the scriptural sense by faith. God simply gives you righteousness. There you go. I'm righteous. I have holy hands, but not because of my holiness, because God has bestowed it on me. How? Apart from works. So David describes this, and he describes it in Psalm 32. I'll read it here in Romans first. It says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man who does everything in the law and fulfills the righteousness of God. Nope. That's not what it said. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. God just won't put into your account the sins you've committed. Instead, you'll have righteousness there. How? By God's grace. Let's look at that psalm in greater context because I, as we're going through Romans, I, one of the things I want to do is focus on how Paul quotes the Old Testament, how he uses the Old Testament. I think it's something that a lot of us wonder about as we're reading through the New Testament. Is like, why did it quote the Old Testament verse here? Why this? So Psalm 32, verse 1, it says... Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. 
David is doing more than simply saying, it's nice to be forgiven. He says, there is a blessedness when your transgression is forgiven, when your sin is covered, when God does not impute sin to you. And then he describes how this happened to him, right? Before I kept silent, I had sinned. So this isn't by staying clean. No, I had sinned and I kept quiet about it. I held it in. I wasn't repenting. I wasn't confessing. But finally, when he says in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. I turned to God. I confessed my transgression. That's all he did. I turned to the Lord in, in repentance and faith, in confession, and God forgave me. And then he universalizes it at the end of the psalm. Verse 6, for this cause, everyone who is godly will pray to you in a time when you may be found. So, oh, it's so great to be forgiven by grace. Let me tell you my story. I'm a lousy sinner. I held it all in like an idiot. But when I opened my heart and said, Lord, I'm a horrible sinner. Forgive me, please. Boom, grace. You should do it too. Like this is, this is it. This is, this is him preaching the gospel to people, you know. He's just saying, come and get saved. David offers more than an example. He offers a teaching he generalizes in the Old Testament. The same thing that we preach when we go out doing an outreach. You've got sin in your heart. You've got sin between you and God. You need to repent of that stuff. Turn to Christ and put your faith in God and he'll, be, and he'll forgive you. There was a, a series of debates back in the 90s, I believe it was all, in the, all of them in the 90s, called the Great Debates. That's what they called them. Um, and there were actually some pretty great debates. And it was between uh, James White, who is a Christian and, and an apologist, and a, a group of different guys who were there intending to be representatives of the Catholic Church. So various different guys. Each, it was always James White, but it was these different guys for each debate. They debated purgatory. They had a debate on Mariology. They had a debate on, uh, on the papacy. They had a debate on the Catholic priesthood. They had a debate on salvation. They had a debate on Sola Scriptura. There's like a whole group of them. They're all like two and a half, three hours long, and they're not entertaining, but they're really good. And I highly, rec I highly recommend, uh, you know, getting into that if, if that's something that you, f you f will expect to find yourself witnessing a lot to Catholics. I think it's a great resource. But in the debate, he repeatedly asked people he debated against. He said, who is the blessed man of Romans chapter 4? He asked the Catholic representative this, who is the blessed man of Romans chapter 4? And the first time he asked this was against a guy named uh, Peter Stravinskis. And this uh, doctor, who is also a, a, a priest, Peter Stravinskis, he's written many, many books. I don't know if he's written 30 books or something like that. He, um, he said, um, I hope I am. Because in Catholicism, there's a sin of assuming that you're saved. It's a sin of assumption. Assuming that you're saved. But... In scripture, it's considered a glorious thing to have confidence in your salvation. But it's, 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 it's arrogant because how do you know you're really good enough? Because it's works plus faith. How do you really know you're good enough? So if you look on, say, catholicanswers.com and you look up how do you know you're saved, they'll say you don't know and it's arrogant for you to say that you know. You should be humble and say you don't know. You're not sure if you're going to make it or not. And I would say, well, I'm saved. And that's not arrogant. Oh, it's boasting, but it's all boasting in Jesus' works. I'm sure that he has perfectly completed my salvation. I'm sure and confident that his death and resurrection is good enough for me. And I'm saved. So who's the blessed man? I'd say the blessed man is me. But through these debates, 
none of these guys could say that they were the blessed man of Romans chapter 4. That as they read this, they couldn't just apply it to themselves. Or Paul says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Is that you? That's me by the grace of Christ. By no good thing I have done. That's me. How wonderful. Verse, verse 9. Romans 4, verse 9, it says, Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Um, this could be a possible objection. They could say, okay, Paul, fine. These are examples of people that were saved by faith in the Old Testament. They were saved without works. They were just given righteousness by God. But they're Jewish. So it only applies to Jews. David was Jewish. Abraham, the father of the Jews. So it only applies to Jews. And so it's sort of assumed that they all have to then fulfill other Jewish requirements. Like it's just sort of hidden in there. It's assumed. You know, you're going to be circumcised. You're going to be under the law. There's a problem here, though. Verse 10 points it out. It says, how then was it accounted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? And Paul knows his Old Testament. So does the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and he says, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Now, I get excited when I think about a rabbi reading this passage in Romans 4. Most of them don't read the New Testament ever. But I get excited when I think about them reading it because it's just good reasoning from the Old Testament scripture, arguing for the gospel. Abraham was righteous by faith. We've shown that in Genesis. But chronologically, he was counted righteous by faith before he was circumcised, not after. Now, circumcision being sort of the seal, the sign that brings you into Judaism, means that you could, be, you could be saved without even being Jewish. By faith. Abraham was saved chronologically before he was circumcised, not after. So it's not a condition of forgiveness. Imagine this. Imagine if you would, if we could have a hypothetical situation where Abraham, in Genesis 15, 6, receives promises from God and then dies. Does he go to heaven? He's not circumcised. But yet right there, he's been accounted righteous. And so, yes, of course, he would be with the Lord. Of course, he couldn't die because God had plans. <laughs> I think this reminds me of what Jesus said to Nicodemus. He says, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Don't you kind of get the impression that Paul's like, come on. Like you're reading the same Old Testament as me. How are you not getting this? Abraham. Abraham. David. These guys were saved by grace. How do you not know this? Of course, it, of course it doesn't need circumcision. It was before he was circumcised. I love this. We too, we could read the Bible. We could miss the point. And, um, and along the same lines, my heart breaks for people who are raised in liberal churches. I've been encountering them online as well as in, in person. And it, it's, it's hit me something I hadn't realized, having been largely brought up in conservative Christianity, right? I think, I think Bible-centered, faithful to the scriptures, Christians being around me, I take for granted that they're... There are people who have been raised for decades in churches where they're preaching a watered-down, twisted version of the gospel and of the Bible and offering horrible excuses for worldliness and ungodliness, and they're confused. They look at, they look at conservative believers, and I don't mean uh, politically, I mean orthodox conservative Christians. They look at you, and they think, yeah, you're just, you just don't get it. You're just not with the times. You need to get into the 21st century. And you look at them and you're like, you just need to believe the Bible for what it actually says. But they have spent years not reading it for what it says. Instead, they quote their teachers, not really the scriptures. 
In fact, so often with liberal people I meet, the scripture they quote is the thing that refutes them if they'll actually look at it in context. Um, so my heart just kind of breaks for, for people in that situation. They're still accountable. They've got the Bible right in front of them. They're accountable for it, but it is, it is sad. So let's not miss this application that Paul has here. Paul directly contradicts over and over the idea of mixing faith and what? Works. works. You do not mix faith and works for salvation. So then that leads you to a question. Well, then what's the point of circumcision? What's the point of it if it's not feeding to my salvation? What's the purpose? Verse 11, he gets into this. And he received the sign of circumcision, the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. To Paul, it was targeted. He's saying, I mean, this is the Holy Spirit inspired. He's saying, look, God is telling us, I gave you the example of Abraham being righteous before he was circumcised, so you would know that circumcision is not what makes you righteous. But what it is, is it's a sign. Circumcision is a sign. It's like when you build a city, you go to the outskirts of the edge of the city and you put up a sign. It helps it be official. That makes sense, right? You put up a sign. It, it tells you what, where you're at, what's going on. Genesis 17.11, Paul's actually just quoting scripture here. It says, And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. That's what circumcision was all along. It was a sign of the covenant. Paul's theology is not shallow. It's not twisted. He's not devaluing circumcision. He's just getting the meaning of circumcision from Genesis. So a sign is not the thing that it signifies. This should be clear. You know, we, we went to... Um, uh, went down the street one of these days and we were walking by this uh, coffee shop that shut down know, a couple years ago now and we saw a sign out front of it that said coming soon portos i don't know if any of you noticed that sign we were pretty excited about that portos is a really yummy uh, cuban bakery and uh delicious food and we're stoked we're like yes we're all gonna get fat and happy now you know we got portos <laughs> right here and while the sign was there for a couple months Portos must have done their research or whatever. For some reason, it fell through, and someone just went up and pulled the sign down. Men went yes, and then it was going to be pyology, and then that went down, and then that. who knows? I don't. I, now there's something else that's going to be in there. To, to Ricky's de, uh, Italian uh, deli type stuff, which I'm just put something there so I can get some food, please. <laughs> but the sign, though, it see the sign doesn't make it real. The sign is appropriate. It's proper. There should be a sign. But the sign isn't the thing. The sign is the sign. That's, that's what Paul is saying. He's saying the sign is a sign. It's important. It's real. Like when, when uh, our tour trip went to Jerusalem, we, we were coming up to Jerusalem and we saw the sign that said Jerusalem. And we all cheered in the bus. Yeah, Jerusalem, we're here. But we weren't like looking at the city yet, you know. We didn't stop the bus and get out and just stand around the sign and take pictures. Like We're like, no, it's just a sign. Like, yay, okay, now let's go. You know, we're not there yet. Circumcision is the sign of a, a seal of the righteousness of faith. It's saying, I'm, I'm identifying with this promise of God through Abraham. I'm one of his descendants. I believe what he believed. I will be circumcised too. That's a good thing for a Jewish person to do. But you can be saved with or without the sign. There are um, outward signs of spiritual realities throughout the Bible. We have these all the time. We have these all the time. And the, the, the sort of the one for the church, I think, is baptism. We have baptism, you know, do, do I have to be baptized to be saved? No, you ought to be baptized because you're saved. 
it's a sign. It's the same kind of thing as that circumcision was. It's proper, it's appropriate, it's right. You ought to do it. It doesn't save you. And then in uh, verse 12, speaking of Abraham still, it says, And the father of the circumcision, to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also who walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. See, Abraham is an example of faith while uncircumcised. A Gentile can follow that. I can follow his faith while uncircumcised. He's also an example of circumcision as a sign of faith. A Jew can follow that. There's a, so there's an example here I can see for, for Abraham, from Abraham, for the Jew or for the Gentile. So to be a Jew and to reject circumcision is to reject the covenant of God with Abraham. That's a big deal. But to be a Gentile and not be circumcised is just to mean that you're not a Jew. But you can still believe what Abraham believed. You're just not going to pretend that you're Jewish. Um, people nowadays often do circumcisions for other medical reasons or because of cultural reasons. That's fine. But if you do it thinking you're doing it as obedience to the Old Testament law to fulfill the righteousness of the law, there's a serious problem. You need to read Galatians. You've got to read Galatians. Um, so how does this apply to us right now? I think issues like baptism, speaking in tongues, church attendance, things that we take and we elevate as a sign of salvation sometimes. We ought not. We should say, no, no, th these might be wonderful things, but they are not proof. I've talked to people before, so are, are you a believer? Are you saved? And they go, I go to church. <laughs> I, and to me, I get worried when I hear an answer like that, because it's like, do you really think that's what salvation is? Going to church? If so, um, that's sad. That's really sad, man. Salvation is so much bigger and more than that. You know, are, are you saved? Like, well, I've read the Bible. Okay, so you're not saved. That's what you're telling me. You're not saved. Like, you need Jesus still. There's more than the signs. There's the actual experience itself. Then in verse 13, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The law of Moses, again, wasn't given for 400, actually more than 400 years plus. Um, and the nature of the promise is that it is simply one-sided. God's like, I'm going to do it, not based on your obedience, not based on anything. You just trust me. You just believe me. Completely one-sided. And Genesis 15, um, let's see. Yeah, let's, let's do this. Let's turn to Genesis 15, and we're going to read through this passage. This is probably where we'll end for tonight. But I want to read it because it's the center of Romans 4's argument. It's an awesome way to witness and share and minister to a Jewish person who might want to meet their Messiah and receive their Messiah, be more Jewish than they've ever been. And, um, and it connects with, with the passage, right? We've been in Genesis 15. That's what he's been quoting. So let's read it. And um, I'll pick up kind of where we left off, right? Verse 6. It says, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And uh, before I move on, let me explain what's happening here. This is an old covenant. Um, we have a lot of records of actually old covenants deals being made this way, contracts where you would take an animal, you, you kill it, you place its body on either side of a path, and then each person walks through the middle of the path, 
reciting their vows for the covenant. I'll do my part. I promise to bring you, you know, 60 sheep in three months' time. And you go, all right, I promise to give you, you know, so many, you know, bundles of grain. You know, and they walk through, and this is the, their covenant is sealed now. It's a deal. It's a contract. And there's sort of the blood is like a witness of this, in a sense. Now, some would be like, Mike, this is bloody, this is gory. Here's the thing. I don't know that a vegetarian is ever going to be okay with this kind of stuff. Um, but my thought is this. If it's, if it's at all okay for people to eat animals to sustain life, so much more is it okay to use the death of an animal in something that's meant to picture the death of Christ. I mean, it's a more noble and wonderful cause when this animal would be dying to picture Christ through sacrifice or through some picture of the Old Testament. I think that that, that type of animal sacrifice is actually a really glorious and wonderful thing, more so than the hamburger you had for lunch. Um, but anyhow, the um, uh, let's see what verse did I leave on. Okay, verse eleven. So so he's got the scene set up. It's ready. The the covenant's ready to be made. And it says, when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he uh, then he said to Abram. Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with a great possession. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquities of the Amorites. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, what was the idea of the terror and the darkness and stuff like that? And he obviously had to wait a long time. The vultures are coming down. He chases them away, a deep sleep and terror. The idea is this is all a picture of the hard times that Israel will face, that the Jewish people will face in, in bondage in Egypt. There will be a delay. God gives us promises, but oftentimes he takes longer to fulfill them than we would like. And Abram, Abram and lots of people in the scripture stand as examples of waiting and waiting and waiting on God's promises. And I would say that's exactly what you should do. Wait and wait and wait. God will do what he said. He'll always do what he said. Then in verse 17. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your descendants, I've given this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And so he commits, you will get this land. Now there's something that just happened here. We have a smoking oven and a burning torch. Boy, that really pictures what Israel experienced in, in, the, uh, in the wilderness. Wandering around and they have the tabernacle there and they have the pillar of fire uh, by night and they have the pillar of smoke by day. And that was what went through here. I think that was parallel to that, that picture of what God was going to do to deliver his people. But also something else happened. This is not how those contracts were made. There's a problem. There was only one person walking through the middle. There was only one person reciting their vows. The other guy was just watching. Why are you just watching? It's almost like you don't have to do anything. It's almost like it's a one-way promise. It's almost like you're saved by faith through grace apart from works. It's not like about what you do. It's just a promise. God's like, I'm going to do it. Just trust me. Okay. That's it. 
this is the beauty of it. This is Genesis 15, man. This is, this is, we're talking Old Testament. You know, <laughs> I get excited about this stuff because I think so many people, they think the Old Testament and the New are not in agreement. They're in perfect agreement. There's a unity in the scriptures that is just so beautiful. And it's little moments where you pull, you pull the scripture out and you, and you go back and forth through and, you're like, and you start to see it. And you're like, oh, wow, God, it's like you planned it all out, you know. <laughs> what do you know? What do you know? Um, there are those who write novels and books and sometimes series of books and a good author is going to sit down and they're going to figure out the whole agenda, the whole storyline before they start the first book. And then they can lay out hints and plot lines that will all tie together at the end from the very beginning. And that's what we see in the scripture. That's what we see. And so the point that Paul has made here is what? Abraham, David, they were saved by faith. They were saved apart from works. And so are you. That's Jewish. That's not Gentile. That is Jewish. That is scripture. That is Old Testament. And it applies to all people. Let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you for your holy word. Um, just to get to see how you have woven these things together, God. How you have placed the gospel into the Old Testament. How exciting. Uh, help us to be better equipped to share this stuff with other people. And help us, Lord, to also know this, that like Abraham, he was a bystander watching you make a covenant, watching you do all the work. We are bystanders when it comes to salvation. We simply, we turn, we open our hearts in repentance and faith. You do all the labor. You save us by grace, through faith, apart from works. And may our confidence be strong. May we know that we are the blessed man of Romans chapter 4. Because you have blessed us, God. May we rest in peace. May tonight when we go to bed, may anxiety not fill our hearts and minds because of weird, hard-to-explain fears and shadows of doubt. But may peace fill our hearts and minds because we rest on Jesus, not ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.